Hi, I'm Marin Berblinger from the When Everyone Leads podcast team. Although season one of our show has come to a close, we couldn't resist sharing just a couple of special episodes before our break. Today's episode may come at the end of our season, but it takes us back to a beginning, exploring the origins of three questions that have become the heart of many conversations at the Kansas Leadership Center. Here on the show, we've posed these same questions to every guest, and they've shared incredible insights about their concerns, aspirations, and the obstacles they face in bridging that gap. But have you ever wondered where these questions actually originated? To unravel this mystery, Chris and Bree sat down with David Chrislip, a longtime friend of the Kansas Leadership Center. Prepare to be surprised by the origins of the gap questions and keep your ears open for snippets of KLC's history along the way. Without further ado, here's the conversation with Chris, Bree, and David Chrislip. I'm David Chrislip, at least part of my background, I'm a Kansan, so I have close ties here. I started working with the Kansas Health Foundation in, say, 1997. They were doing some experiments with leadership development, partly because they'd found that the programs that they had didn't take unless somebody in those communities picked up and owned those programs from within the community. So they started this leadership development work. That eventually evolved into the way I've put it is that KHF made a jump in suggesting that the presence of civic leadership in a community was a primary social determinant of health. That if we don't have local civic leadership owning these programs, we will not make progress on health issues. And that they believe that to such an extent that they started these experiments with leadership development, and out of that began to consider how could we create an institution that built civic leadership. I was part of an advisory board for KHF for a couple of years, and out of that grew the Kansas Leadership Center, and I was one of the founders of KLC. One of the first things that happened, I met Ed O'Malley just after he began He was sitting in an office over at KHF by himself, no staff, didn't know what to do, didn't know where he was going, and he came to visit me in Colorado. One of the first questions he asked me, of all the things we could do, what should we do? My answer to him was, it depends. And I think that was the first time that that's the answer he heard, because most people's answer would be, well, you should do This, 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 and this. And he said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said... Whatever you do at KLC has to respond to the context and challenges in Kansas. It can't be something that you just pull off the shelf and assume it responds to Kansas context and challenges. Before we get too deep into those questions, let me sort of give you a sense of how we got here and why we're talking to you today. We've been using these gap questions, and I'm going to read them off here real quick. When you think about the topic of blank, what concerns you the most? What are your aspirations? And 
what gets people stuck in the gap between those concerns and aspirations? There are some other questions that we ask, but those three questions have been sort of the guiding light of what we've talked to our guests about on this podcast. And they've been really effective at generating great conversation. It seems like we've been using this question of when you think about the future, what concerns you the most, all the way back to that original listening tour. Tried to go back and find the time when oh I God, did the guys, first he's pulling out a folder. gap exercise. <laughs> and so this is from the KLC Guiding Coalition <laughs> retreat circa 2010. These questions have sustained themselves for a long time. And we found them useful in multiple different contexts. They drive the energy and conversation in our podcast. Where do they come from? Why do they work? And why is this good infrastructure to build leadership development around? Some 16 years later, they still have this power and resonance that drive our work. For me, these questions go back to about 1990. They go back to some work I had with Shell Oil Company in London. And I'm sure these questions go back further than that, but that's as far back as I go. At that time, your idea of a strategy was to take those trends, extend them out into the future as if they would continue forever. Because that's how everything works, right? The right. same trends just the go, same on trend. for go on for <laughs> on and on. Pretty much the price of oil had been stable since the end of World War II. Well, somebody in Shell about 1970, it says, look, we've got this organization, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, that could have a lot of control over the price. What if they decided to exert their pretty much unilateral power? And in fact, that's what happened in 1972 or thereabouts. There was a time in 1971, 72, the price of gasoline here in Wichita was about 18 cents a gallon. At some point along the way, it might have even down to 16, 17 or something like that. Now in 1973, this OPEC organization decided by our control of the volume, we can control the price of it. If we reduce the volume, the price is gonna go way up. Like supply and demand? Supply and demand. So they began to do that. And the price went up in 73 or 74, by several times, I've forgotten the multiple. That ended the era of stable oil prices and the ability to predict off these trends. So instead, Shell decided we better become better at understanding the context in which our decisions occur. So they began to ask questions like these. When you think about the future of oil production, for example, what concerns you the most? And they developed a scenarios process, which was what the context might look like. And if the context looked like this, we would do one thing. If it looked like that, we would do another thing. Your decisions would be better informed than if you were just relying on prediction mm. and the trends were going to continue the same. So these questions actually came out of Shell. I learned mm. them from Shell. I don't know where the roots came before that. So did these questions just stick with you or did you find yourself experimenting with them after you heard it? Why would questions that apply to an oil company getting squeezed by its suppliers apply to a state well, of nearly 3 million people wanting to address its leadership yeah. challenges more effectively? 
Another piece of the roots of this, Peter Senge, who's an author on leadership and organizational development. He wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline. Here's how Peter sort of extended these questions. They were much like the ones that you read out here. They were what concerns you the most. So he was trying to get a picture of what he called current reality. What's going on now? A second question that he would ask, what are your aspirations or visions? So he had a boundary set up. And what Peter's idea was that holding on to that tension would draw you towards the vision. You had brought up a business example of it. In your experience of working these questions, are there certain sectors that are a little bit more unpredictable than others, or is it very sporadic? I think up until the 70s, 80s or so, most people in business thought that most things were fairly predictable. And it became pretty obvious, I would say probably starting around the time where there was this tension in the price of oil, for example, which affected businesses everywhere. That became a big uncertainty, not something you could plan on. And it was a significant part of any business's costs. Mm -hmm. And I think as time has passed, we begin to recognize another word that's in our language, that these are adaptive challenges, in the sense that we don't know the answers, and you have to learn and adapt. And if you are learning and adapting, you have to understand the context in which that occurs at a much deeper way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's become much more essential in almost any kind of business or organization. Mm -hmm. Look at the things that have affected us in the last five to ten years. We've had a significant change in the politics at the national level that's affected how we operate, how we work together or don't work together. We've had a pandemic. We've had climate change, which is much more noticeable and present than it was 10 or 15 years ago. They are collective challenges in that they affect all of us, and all of us are part of the mess, like an adaptive challenge. I'd be curious about your sense of knowing this increasing level of unpredictability and being able to look at this gap between where you're at and where you want things to be. How common was it for leadership programs to build what they taught people to do around those ideas? It was uncommon. The idea of adaptive challenges and identifying this as such really evolved in the 1990s. You look back at leadership development programs, in my experience, 1970, 1980, 1990, was still all about there are leaders, they are in charge, they ought to know what to do, they ought to have a vision, they ought to show us the way. It was not about discovering the way. And we still haven't made this change. KLC is, I think, at the forefront of leadership for collective and adaptive challenges. As I've been investigating this and trying to figure out how this works, I have stumbled across some things and learned some things and talked to some people, including Kehan Shams, who is a PhD candidate in leadership communication at Kansas State University Staley School of Leadership, a graduate research assistant for Kansas Leadership Center's own third floor research. So he's actually looking at real theories to link this to. And he actually came to our all staff meeting and presented about them. And I just had kind of a aha moment. Oh, this feels like a reason that the gap exercise might be useful. And he talks about this thing called dual process theory where there's a type one and a type two of 
thinking. And I really should offer a disclaimer here that I've talked to Kahan about this, but he bears no responsibility <laughs> for anything that I get wrong in trying to describe this. But one of the things he talks about is the way we change habits or go in a new direction or adopt a new behavior. We run up into something where what we expect to happen or what we want to happen isn't the results we're producing by our actions. And so he brought up this concept of dissonance. And I'm going to put Brie on the spot. When I say the word dissonance, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? It's not connecting. Yeah, that's I'm, right. Yeah, yeah you, you, yeah. yeah, you got it. So the classic example of dissonance is smoking. So you know that smoking isn't healthy for you. You know it's bad for you, but you do it anyway. And so then you kind of have a choice. You can either try to align your behaviors and stop smoking because you want to protect your health, or you say, maybe all my family members, they died when they were 45 anyway. It doesn't matter if I smoke. This really isn't going to affect my health at all. Or you can start shifting. Another example that Kahan used is riding a bike. You know how to ride a bike. You've done it and you'll always be able to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. I learned how to ride a bike year after year after year. That does not work for me. <laughs> I so had some to of learn us, every some single of us year. <laughs> encounter dissonance in different situations than others, but you're riding your bike and then all of a sudden you hit a curb and you're thrown off. And so now if you want to learn how to ride your bike in a world where curbs are just popping out of nowhere, you have to learn a new behavior. You have to think about different reasons. Maybe I was looking at something else or I was texting on my phone, which is why I hit a curb. Go back to the shell thing again. Mm -hmm. Nobody in 1965 or so thought that the price of oil was ever going to go out of this small band. And all of a sudden, somebody says, I see an organization that has the potential of significantly influencing the price of oil. And if they have the potential to do it, there is a possibility they would do it. And brought that into the conversation instead of just saying, I can ride a bike and I'm never going to hit a curb. Yeah, this type one and type two thinking might sound familiar if you encountered the book by Daniel Kahneman, mm -hmm. Thinking yes. Fast and Slow. And I asked Kahan about that, and he said that there are a lot of similarities between the two, and they reference each other, and then they have all sorts of specifics that I don't understand. But this whole idea of having this algorithmic thinking. But to get to new stuff, we have to say, wait a second, the way we've been doing things, the way I thought this would play out isn't really playing out that way. So what are the different reasons for that? What might I do differently? And so it creates this world of possibilities to open up multiple simulations and you start thinking about different things. And once you have those simulations, then you can start taking different action. And I think it's really interesting because I don't know that at the Kansas Leadership Center, or even in the book, as great as it is, that we talk about why our minds work this way or why this approach might really work versus something else, which I think is important because we're asking people to do something different. We're asking people to learn something different, try something different, accept a different idea about leadership. I'm not that familiar with the theoretical part. I have the experiential like you, we know these experiences are powerful for people. Mm. We have four competencies. We have managed self, we have diagnosed situation, we have intervened skillfully and energized others. What we're talking about here is how do we improve our diagnostic skills. The deeper we understand our context and what could happen, 
in the context, the more skillful our interventions will be. And that's what Shell was after. And so they developed this method, Scenarios, which is very close to the simulations piece that you mentioned there. And it was to create different pictures of the future context and to play out different interventions in those contexts. One, its purpose, I think, is to create dissonance, and it creates some tension that we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier between aspiration and current reality. But it also allows you to make more skillful interventions if you're aware of these options, because the context may come at be different than what you think it is, and you're more prepared for it. I have to admit, I am experiencing a little cognitive dissonance from tracing this back to the Shell Oil Corporation. <laughs> With all due respect to the Shell Oil Company, I had this sense of, oh, these are deep, meaningful questions about civic life. And- What's interesting about it, I learned this through working with my friend and colleague, Adam Kahane. Adam was working at Shell at the time and working on these scenarios. Well, Adam quit Shell in about 1991. And you know where he went? He went to South Africa. And the most famous set of civic scenarios was developed in South Africa around the transition from apartheid to democratic government. There may be some distance of looking back at Shell, but the extension of the Shell work went into understanding the civic context and was part of the understanding South Africa could could respond to the opportunity for democracy in several ways. You could stick your head in the sand. An ostrich scenario was the name of it. There were other scenarios. Flamingos was another one. One of the characteristics of them is that they all take off together. And if you could figure out how to make this transition in such a way that there's more likely that we all take off together, you'd be better off than your head in the sand. Did you guys just use different bird analogies? These were, (laughs) and I've I've forgotten the other two. There were four scenarios in that. I think they were all birds. (laughs) What it allowed people to do is says, look, if ostrich unfolds, we're in trouble here. We're not much better off than we were in the past. Mm -hmm. If we could take actions that headed us more in a direction of flamingos taking off together, we'll make a better transition than if we stick our heads in the sand. Bree, I'm interested. What are you experiencing? You're one of the newer people to these ideas. You've had to talk about them for a whole season. And now we're kind of looking under the hood about where some of this stuff comes from. And Mm -hmm. what do you think? Is this interesting? Are we boring you? You're not boring me. I just realized that I actually never thought about where it came from. I knew that we used it all the time. So even if it wasn't for this season... We use these questions whenever we're doing internal conversations. We spend time in the gap quite frequently. And I didn't know where it came from. Did I ever ask myself where it came from? No. And I started asking the question because I found myself using them so much and Mm -hmm. coming to them over and over and over again and applying them to more and more situations. And I started thinking, based on what we teach, is that just a pattern or a habit? Or are these questions really what the moment calls for? And how do I know when they're the questions that are right for the moment? Yeah, that's the big question. When is the most appropriate time to use the gap? Back to my thoughts around when KLC first started, my conversation with Ed was wanting to be sure that whatever it is that we did responded to the context and challenges here. And that idea of our interventions must respond 
to the context that we're in. We can't come up with a sort of an ideal universal intervention that will address the things that we, we're working on. We know that because they're adaptive challenges. And by asking these questions, it makes us come back to understanding the context. And I have to understand that context in order to shape an intervention that will respond. I always thought how cool it was that the Health Foundation decided that civic leadership was so important and that's what creates health. Before working here, I would have never equated health with civics. And then adding the psychological aspect of it that you just did, Chris, you're talking all of the languages that I speak. I think about the questions and then I think the implication of having people answer these questions, I think puts some responsibility back on KLC, back on our network, back on our alumni, because what we're really asking people to do is open up this yawning chasm. Well, if you're going to open up a chasm in people's life, don't you have to also give them the resources to navigate the skills and behaviors? I mean, if we just did the gap exercise and just left it there, like a cable news program or something, we'd just leave people hanging. At that point, you just built up maybe some tension that was never spoken of within the company or within the business. And then you're just like, yeah, we're just going to leave it here for y'all to look at and never follow up with anything. Right. Right. And yet part of our framework is to intervene skillfully. It's to resolve that gap in some way. How? When we're talking about the work that we do, especially with these collective problems, the how, the response has to be collective too. Mm -hmm. Even if I do the diagnostic work really well and understand the context really well, and I say, I've got it and go out there, and as soon as I go out there with, I got it. Great, perfect, bye. (laughs) Yeah, Bree says, you don't got it. (laughs) And so these responses to the context are also collective ones, collaborative ones. How do we engage others in figuring this out? And do we think that these questions work just as well with individuals as they do groups, as they do with companies, as they do with systems, as they do with a society? Or do we still have questions about that? I'll answer that from experience. I don't have any research to back it up. Mm -hmm. But we've seen in our work that this has been powerful at all those levels. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that you asked that, Chris, because I have always done the gap as a company and as a team but I've never thought about doing the gap. Like when I think about the future of my life, what concerns me the most? You apply that to yourself and where (laughs) you might go as a person, but it's right there in the community too. If you could create an engagement with your community that helped you say, this is the current reality of what's going on in our community. These are our shared aspirations and we could see that tension in some more detail, we'd be in a better place to intervene to plan our interventions to move from here to there. I have a one question. I don't know whether this is part of our conversation. From your perspective, how does this connect with when everyone leads? It's actually really interesting because we had the exact same script for each person. These questions were able to really dig into their challenge and really bring out what it was that they're concerned about. Yeah, I think it's really hard to lead if you don't ask yourself these questions. Mm -hmm. So this is back to the diagnostic part. Again, allows you to intervene skillfully. So when everyone leads, your hope is that they do this in some conscious and intentional, informed, thoughtful way, not just when everyone leads, everybody intervenes whenever they want and does whatever they want. Mm -hmm. You're trying to help them be skillful 
about that intervention. Because I'm Mr. Meta guy and every thought I have is meta, I mm-hmm. think prompting people to ask these questions can be an act of leadership because yes. of the dissonance you're creating, which creates yes. the potential. So if you're in a position where you have a challenge you can't solve, these questions should be in your back pocket to pull out to try to start the conversation. Yes. You're talking about leadership as an activity in a different sort of way here. The leadership is an activity of not me asserting where I think we should go and therefore you should follow me. That's not the activity we're talking about. We're talking about an activity that would further our work as a group towards some goal or some measure of progress that we're trying to make. And that intervention that we make is moving the conversation ahead towards making progress. It is not telling us where we should go or telling us what the answer is. It is facilitating the movement of the conversation. A lot of people find that hard, though, not yes. getting the well, answer. It's their, algorithmic, it's their algorithmic type one. Like, yeah, like, Just tell me what to do. And it, and it I is our, script. It is our tradition and our dominant narrative of leadership says that's what we ought to do. Mm. We ought yeah. to show the way and point the direction. That's where we ought to go. Another way of helping make progress is in this moment, the three of us right here, how could we move our conversation ahead one step by the interjection of a question like this would help yeah. us make progress. Yeah, and I don't want to be seen as the person who's bad-mouthing, algorithmic thinking. Because if I said, Bree, duck, what would you do? you duck. <laughs> like, you wouldn't ask me, well, what sort of duck is Chris talking about? <laughs> could it be a goose? Could it be, could it be an ostrich? Like, what, you know, like I need to reflect more on this situation. Sometimes you do just have to act, and sometimes you have to put yes. what you know into action. Thanks for listening to season one of When Everyone Leads, the podcast. We had fun and learned a lot this season, and we hope you did too. We're going to take a break. So stay in touch with us on Instagram at When Everyone Leads, or connect with the Kansas Leadership Center on Facebook at Kansas Leadership Center, or on Twitter at the KLC. Remember, leadership starts with you. Onward. I can be loose again when everyone leads from a squat position. Okay.